Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, January 27th, 2012. Coming limping in. I have done so much radio in the last 48 hours that my head is spinning. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Just because somebody claims to have a vision from God or claims to be a man of God or it, or has grown a big, successful megachurch doesn't necessarily mean that what they're telling you is the truth. Um, when it comes to whether or not something is true, you don't look at the attendance figures. That's not an indicator. You have to actually look at the scriptures in context to see if that's really what's being said. Because Jesus himself warned us that in the last days there will be false messiahs, there will be false prophets with false signs and false wonders, and that they would attempt to mislead, if possible, even the elect. But see, good Christian, understand this. We have a revelation from God. And God actually gave us a, a book that's not that hard to get. It's, in fact, the, uh, the correct term is the perspicuity of Scripture. It's understandable. It's knowable. Uh, but that being the case, um, y'all remember the, uh, the very, 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 very first Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Indiana Jones movie? It was a fantastic movie. I, I didn't really care for number four. That was kind of weird with the whole alien things and you know surviving a nuclear blast by getting inside of a refrigerator. That was a little bit. I gotta admit, there was, a, there was the cheese factor was pretty big in the fourth installment of the Indiana Jones movies. But anyway, I I digress. But in the very very first Indiana Jones, uh, uh, was it the Lost Ark? Sorry, Raiders of the Lost Ark, not Temple of Doom. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, what happened is, is that they were searching for uh, the uh, the lost Ark of the Covenant, you know, from the children of Israel, from the Old Testament. Apparently, it had disappeared and gotten, uh, and it had been put into an inner chamber in a city in in Egypt called Tanis. And then a, a an epic biblical proportion sandstorm covered up the city. And and you know, anyway, you, 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 you all have seen the movie. But what happened is, is that when they were trying to rediscover the Ark. 
um, you know, to learn where it was. There was an artifact that had information as to how to find out where the ark was. And the idea was you take this amulet and you put it on a pole. And the pole, at a certain time of the day, the sun would shine through it. And then a, a laser beam-like light would shoot out of the, the, the jewel in the amulet and then... And, and then enlighten you know light up where the uh, where the chamber was where the uh, the lost ark of the covenant was and if you remember uh in the story the uh, the nazis were the ones who uh, had gotten they had made their own version of the amulet because they had the imprint of it on somebody's hand it had been burned into the, you know one of the bad guys's hand but see the, they only had one side of it as a result of only having, well, one side of the amulet, they didn't have all of the information. As a result of it, their stick was was not the right height. See, that's the thing. Because if you had the amulet, there's two sides to it. It's a, you know, this measurement and then subtract this, and then that would give you the right size. And once you had that, then you had the ability to know where the lost ark was. So, okay, that's kind of the metaphor I'm working for here. But So the idea is this. If we approach Scripture with the wrong set of assumptions, with the wrong set of calculations, if you would, we're never going to be able to figure out what this book's about. And, he, yeah, the first thing that's got to go, the first thing that has got to get out of your mind is, number one, the Bible's not about you. Um, you're not the Messiah. These are not Aesop's fables. Uh, it's not to be approached in such a way that you you basically treat it like you know silly putty or play-doh or you know some kind of clay where you can kind of mold it into funny little animals and things like that. No, 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 no. God has particular historical accounts that are recorded in His Word that point us not to ourselves but to Jesus Christ. All of Scripture is about him and what he has done is doing to save you and me. I mean, when we come into this world, we're, you know, we're born naked, screaming, and, uh, and immediately we, are, we find ourselves in a, on a planet where there's things like starvation, hunger, death, disease, uh, terrible car crashes, uh, drunken parents. I mean, the abuse of all kinds, physical, sexual. I mean, you just name the list. I mean, there's thefts, murders, adulteries. I mean, this is not a safe planet. No matter how you slice it, this is just not a safe planet. And you all remember back to when you were in, in elementary school? You had school fights, disagreements, backbiting pettiness. I mean, it was just from day one, There's so you know there's something wrong with this planet. And if you're really honest, you realize that there's something wrong with you too. Because here's the deal. Look at your odds of getting out of of staying here, you know, and living forever. Like zero. You know, you, you, you go and you, you go to classes called history and you read about oh, people who are dead and the things that they did when they were alive, but they're dead now and none of them are alive. And you realize this is your fate. I mean, you ever wake up in the middle of the night with one of those startling revelations and, you know, you're gasping for breath and you wake up out of deep sleep and you got sweat on your brow and you go, man, I'm going to die someday. Right. You are. You see, you'll just look around you and you know that everything is messed up and you know that you're messed up too, right? Well, see, that's the thing. The Bible actually explains how the world came to be in the mess that it's in 
and it tells us how we got here, and it tells us what God has done to rescue us from this horrible, messed up, screwed up, sinful world of which you are an active participant, not an innocent bystander. You are part of the story, and you play the part of the villain whom Christ died for. You see, so here's the deal. If you want to understand what the Bible's about, first and foremost, you come to it on its own terms, not your terms. But see, that's the temptation, is it not? Because the first commandment is you will have no other gods before me. And since we're all born sinners, we approach the, the Bible as if we're God, not God. As if we know better than God what he can and cannot do, how he does and doesn't work, right? Yeah, you must come to Scripture on bended knee. You must come humbly saying, Lord, I am racked with sin and I do not know how to think as I ought. And let my mind be transformed by your word and let your mind be transformed by it. Don't approach it and ask yourself, what does this mean to me? You know, the question is, what does it mean? When you approach the scripture that way, then you find the most amazing story of all. God himself literally taking on the punishment that we've all earned as a result of our active rebellion against him. He takes it upon himself and offers to us full and complete forgiveness and pardon of our sins. He calls us to repent and trust in him and his mercy and his goodness and his finished work on the cross for our sins. Not a better story out there. And the best part about it, it's not mythology. It's true. It really is true. So the problem what we're seeing in, this, in the church today is a, uh, well, a resurgence of idolatry, if you would. A, a, an idolatry that doesn't make any sense, at least as to its origin, or where it's at this point just pervasive. It's all over the church. People who, I mean, we're awash in Bibles. I mean, it's like they're publishing brand new, you know, translations of the Bible on a on an annual basis. I mean, there's multiple translations, multiple people out there working on study Bibles, this Bible, that Bible, ESV, NIV. You know, you just put it, put it all together, and what ends up happening? We're, we're awash in Bibles, but we're literally ir, ir, biblically ignorant. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it would be like living on a houseboat on a freshwater lake, you know, at an alpine altitude and literally dying of thirst. It doesn't make any sense. But see, that's the thing about sin. It really takes it takes humanity and turns humanity inside out, upside down, and makes us the opposite of what it is that God made us to be. So that we believe lies is the truth and stubbornly persist in those lies. But Christ calls us to repent. Repent of hanging on to those idolatrous lies, those silly religious opinions that you hold that have no basis in the truth or God's word, and again approach the scriptures with the understanding that your reason, your thinking, your ideas must bend the knee to what God has revealed in his word. Because 
God is true. And men, all of them, are liars. Something to keep in mind. All right, so we're another edition of Fighting for the Faith here. It is Friday, and I got to tell you, I just I woke up this morning and went, huh? oh man, I, I got to work today. <laughs> Let's just put it this way, you know. At this point, it's like you know, I I I I want to shake my fist at James McDonald, and you know, it's, man. Why'd you have to go and threaten to arrest me? Because now everybody wants me to be on the radio programs talking about what happened. And so yesterday I did, oh man, I did my radio program. I was on Brandon House's program. I was on CARM. I was, uh, I, and then, uh, you know, uh, uh, Psycho Woods uh, from uh, His Word, His Way uh, uh, podcast out in Houston, Texas. I was on uh, his program. I, I went to bed last night at like midnight, just limped in and just said, Done, 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 done. Woke up this morning going, I'm still done. <laughs> but anyway, so here's what we're going to do. Okay, slightly shorter program today if I if I stay on topic. Uh, the idea is what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a, just a little bit of uh, Elephant Room wrap-up. I mean, <laughs> it's like... Okay, okay, and let me put it this way. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not playing any audio sound bites from it, but uh, let me say this. Dr. James White, Alpha and Omega Ministries. He, I listened to uh, his uh, his radio program this morning, and he just did a fantastic job. I mean, and you know, he he he, he has audio of T.D. Jakes preaching modalism, and uh, he just, <laughs> he played those audio bites, and it's like, whoa! <laughs> I mean, I I I he's been doing this a lot longer than I have. And the one thing that's uh, interesting about his archives is, is that you know James White is uh, you know he debates folks uh, you know he does a lot of debating, and so he's debated publicly uh, guys in the oneness uh, in the oneness uh, UPC and other things, and uh, and so I mean in, in preparation for his debate I mean he's got all of the stuff you know in, in in his archives that you know you can you can have access to so. Um, he he pulled some of uh, these quotes from his archives, you know, regarding what uh, T.D. Jakes teaching modalism. No doubt about it. He walked through the audio from Driscoll's and Jakes's conversation, and basically came to the conclusion that he's not. He he didn't say anything substantive or meaningful, and it, you know, it's like he was waffling. You know, he's a he's a Trinitarian who prefers modalistic language. Well, what is that? I mean, that's neither fish or fowl. I mean. That's like saying you know you take fire and water and put it together and have fire water. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense. So uh, what I would point you to if you have not heard uh, Dr. James White and his analysis, the theological analysis, and this is a guy who's publicly debated uh, folks who who hold to the uh, modalistic heresy. Um, you know, then you need to listen to that because I I would basically acquiesce. And say James White did the best treatment on this. I don't even need to weigh in on it. Go listen to his program from today, Friday, January twenty seventh, twenty twelve. The Dividing Line. You need to listen to it. It's two hours long, and in the first hour, hour fifteen minutes, he walks through all of this and just lays it out perfectly. That's all I can say. And so, you know, I'm not even going to try to add anything to it. Just like I said, you need to listen to his analysis. He he did the definitive work on what was said in the elephant room. And, you know, I 
I'm just going to stand behind him. And if anyone comes to me and says, I'm going to say, talk to James White. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Because why? Because I'm tired. Anyway, so what I'm going <laughs> to... What I'm going to do today is I'm going to point out one thing uh, that I just, you know, that was just, I was thinking about this and I was talking to Ken Silva last night too. And I said, you know, the one thing that just keeps bugging me, you know, as I, as, you know, as I reviewed the audio and the video from the, uh, the elephant room and then, uh, and then looked at the transcript, it's like just one something bugged me. And I, and so I'm going to read a blog post that I uh, put together today called Theological Sleight of Hand at the Elephant Room. And just kind of walk you through something, and you'll you'll see what I. If, in fact, if you want to read it, you can read it at my blog, Letter of Mark M A R Q U E dot U S Letter of Mark dot U S, and uh, and you can read that. But uh, so what we're gonna do? Just we're gonna do an elephant room, uh, you know, segment today. Gonna walk through that blog post, and then I'm gonna play a little bit of audio uh, from my appearance last night on uh, Psycho Woods. Uh, um, program his word his way and uh you know it and you know you gotta understand this guy was at the conference in houston and i there's certain things i want you to hear him say as he recounts his experience at uh at the elephant room satellite event in houston texas you need to you need you need to hear it you need to hear what he said because it's worth passing along so and then what we're going to do once we're done with our elephant room update i'm going to begin to launch into a series of lectures that we're going to feature here at fighting for the faith put together by uh, dr michael horton of the white horse inn he has a book out called the gospel commission recovering god's strategy for making disciples and we're going to begin to work our way through um, lectures that he's given, uh, you know, that covers uh, the, a lot of the top informational topics in his new book. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be playing one, possibly two, depending on how much I, I talk today, uh, of uh, classes on the Great Commission, you know, t- covering the information in his book, The Gospel Commission. So we're going to begin working our way through that today. You know, we'll play them you know they'll probably end up being part of the light edition of fighting for the faith on a weekly basis until we get through them but um worth passing along um you know i'm about halfway through listening to the lectures and definitely think this is something we all need to hear especially in light of the craziness going on in the seeker driven movement and their complete misunderstanding of what evangelism is and 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 the their abdication of their responsibility to make disciples so i think michael horton's contribution to this uh, to this controversy and conversation is well worth hearing, well thought out. And so I'm looking forward to passing that information along to you. So without any further ado, let's uh, dive into the program proper. Look out, look out, meet elephants on parade. Here they come, hippity-hoppity, they're here, and there big elephants everywhere. Look out, look out. They're walking around the bed, on their head, clippity-coppity, parade, in braid, big elephants on parade. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. I can stand the sight of worms and look at microscopic germs, but technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. <laughs> I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint, but seeing things, you know that ain't can certainly give you an awful fright. What a sight! Chase 
Chase them away, chase them away. I'm afraid, need your eight big elephants on parade. Pink elephants. Pink elephants. Yeah, there we go. All right, that's our uh, pink our elephant in the room uh, conference update. So from my blog, letterofmark.us, yeah, again, L-E-T-T-E-R-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-E.us, Letter of Mark. Uh, my uh, blog post is entitled Theological Sleight of Hand at the Elephant Room. Okay, Now, James White does a far better analysis of this. Um, however, um, you'll see what the point that I'm making. There's something. Go- there's some obfuscation that went on there at the Elephant Room. So I, I begin by asking, does T.D. Jakes confess the doctrine of the Trinity or not? Well, many are pointing to his affirmation of his belief in one God and three persons in the Elephant Room on Wednesday as proof that he's a Trinitarian and not a modalist. However, I contend that what happened in the Elephant Room was more akin to a cheap card trick than a true theological confession. Let me demonstrate how the card trick was done. First, before we do that, though, you got to get some definitions on the table. It's important to note that modalists believe in one God who manifests as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are not three persons, but three manifestations of the one person who is God. Okay, This is a classic understanding of what modalism is. Now, with that definition in hand, we now turn to the elephant room, too. Uh, between Mark Driscoll, T.D. Jakes, and James McDonald. And by the way, you can read the uh, transcript. I link to it. Uh, from uh, from that blog. So the conversation begins with T.D. Jakes explaining his early years in a, in a modalist church. Jakes then confesses that he's rethought modalist theology and says that it doesn't reflect his current beliefs. Okay. So then Mark Driscoll asks, we all would agree that in the nature of God there is mystery. And it's like a dimmer switch, how much certainty, how much mystery. But within that, Bishop Jakes, for you, the issue between Trinitarianism and modalism at its essence is one God manifesting himself successively in three ways or one God, three persons simultaneously existing eternally. So your uh, so best, what is your understanding now? And I understand there's some mystery for sure. Would you say it's one God manifesting himself in three ways or one God in three persons? T.D. Jakes answers. He says, I believe that neither one of them totally did it for me. Again, so he's asked, which one is it? Pick one. It's got to be one of these two. Jake says, I believe that neither one of them totally did it for me. But the latter one is where I stand today. Driscoll pushes him to firmly pick one by asking, one God, three persons? Jakes then answers, one God, three persons, one God, three persons. Okay. So there, okay. Now, up to this point, I mean, it sounds like he just admitted that he's a Trinitarian, right? I mean, we can now fist pump each other and high five and, and, you know, and have a party. Okay. T.D. Jakes is a Trinitarian now. Well, I write, well, the illusion is now complete. Jakes is now officially a Trinitarian, right? We can firmly put all of these modalist allegations to bed, right? Nope. Please note that I only quoted the very, 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 very first sentence in Jakes' answer. 
Jakes's full answer was this. One God, three persons. One God, three persons. And here is why. There, I, I'm not crazy about the word persons. This is, most people who follow me know that, 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 that is really, my doctrinal statement is no different from yours except for the word. Driscoll completes Jake's sentence by filling in that one word, and it's the word manifestations. So then Jake's says, quote, manifest instead of persons. Jake's then goes on to explain why he isn't comfortable with the word persons. Therefore, in T.D. Jake's own words, he actually clarified what he believed, and that clarification is summed up by stating that Jake's believes, T.D. Jake's believes in one God, three manifestations. That's right, okay? Now, I understand that there's a lot of people out there on Twitter and people who were attended. See, he said one God, three persons. But what happened at the elephant room was a theological sleight of hand. T.D. Jakes himself took issue with the word persons and wanted it replaced with the word manifestations. Okay, He said manifest instead of persons. So he will affirm that he believes in one God and three persons, if by person you mean manifestation, right? So T.D. Jakes, based on his clarification and his, well, protesting, if you would, of the word persons and his un, him not being comfortable with that word per se, said in reality claimed that he believed in one God and three manifestations. By the way, Modalists believe in one God who manifests as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are not three persons, but three manifestations of the one person who is God. Therefore, Jake's actually admitted to being a modalist, not a Trinitarian. You see what the difference just one word can make? Just one word. And by the way, y- y'all heard that uh, phrase, not one iota? Yeah, it, 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 you know, talking about the Greek word, you know, the Greek letter, iota, okay? Uh, at Nicaea, okay, the Council of Nicaea, I mean, the, there was a heated battle, not over a single word, but over a single letter, and the letter was iota. The words that were being kicked about in trying to properly understand what the Bible teaches, what God has revealed about himself regarding the doctrine of the Trinity, was the difference between the word Homoousius and homoousius of same substance or of like substance. Yeah, sometimes theological distinctives actually come down to the difference of just one letter. And that one letter decides whether or not you believe the truth or you believe a lie. And that's just a fact. So the fact that anybody with an objective mind who watched what happened at the Elephant Room Conference and and heard what Jake said and took a look at the transcripts, they would have no choice but to conclude that T.D. Jakes, when he himself pushed to clarify what he believes, took issue with the word persons and wanted to replace it with the word manifest. T.D. Jakes confessed to believing in one God 
three manifestations. And when it was said that he believed in one God, three persons, it was persons with an asterisk next to it. Uh, yes, I believe in one God, three persons, and the idea is, so long as it's understood that that means manifestation. He was waffling. That's the only way to put it. Okay, we are up on our first break. And if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement, while in a beanbag, eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Uh, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve package. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? 
the sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to meet its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see here. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Uh, uh, well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop, and, uh, well, we're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio... Very well, I'll give them a try. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Warning. The doctrine of the Trinity is not a non-essential doctrine. It's absolutely a cardinal doctrine. Disagreement on the doctrine of the Trinity actually separates people in the body of Christ. That means, you know, you go from brother to not brother. That's all I'm saying. Anyway. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, moving along here. I'm still in the uh, in the elephant room mode. Today, um, d- d- James McDonald, on his blog, posted a blog post entitled, Bishop Jake's Second Decisions and Coming Home. <laughs> to which he, he said some pretty interesting things. I, that's all. That's you know, it's probably best if I just read a little bit. I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but 
Starting about halfway through uh, one of the paragraphs, partway down in his blog post, James McDonald writes, he says, The goal of the Elephant Room was to help pastors around the country open their hearts to the possibility that loving interaction with the pastor down the street would advance the kingdom more than suspicious silence. I believe that was accomplished due to the incredible courage shown by each participant who honored us by risking the disdain of their own constituencies to have grace-slash-truth conversations with the broader body of Christ. By broader, you mean just basically guys who agree with the seeker-driven methodologies. <clears throat> anyway, um, Jake uh, uh, James McDonald continues. He says, I was initially planning to publish the transcript of session four between Mark Driscoll and Bishop Jakes, where Bishop Jakes confirmed his Trinitarian belief and affirmed God in three persons eternally existing. He disavowed modalism while expressing his great love and appreciation for his spiritual heritage, including baptism. Baptist, Methodist, and Oneness. I wanted to publish the conversation word for word to keep people from distorting it. But on our staff, we talk about the importance of the second decision. The second decision is where you admit that the first decision was a bad one. I have decided not to publish this. <laughs> you can't make this up. I, you just can't make this up. <laughs> so apparently they've decided it's a bad decision to publish an official transcript of what T.D. Jake said. So he decided not to publish the transcripts of any conversations from Elephant Room 2. My goals are already accomplished, according to the people that I account to. <laughs> okay, let me see if I have this straight. So you're going to publish an official transcript of the Jake's conversation. So that people wouldn't distort it. But then you decided that you're, you, you're not going to publish it because that would be a bad decision. <laughs> what? <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense to me. It just, it's like, I'm, I feel like I'm, I've landed in, you know, in Wonderland. I've gone through the looking glass or something. Everything's upside down, backwards, inside out, and, you know, it doesn't make any sense. So let me see. Okay, so we don't want people distorting what Jake said. Right, right, right. But we're not going to publish the transcript because that would be a bad decision. Okay, right. So in other words, you know, this makes it possible for, you know, does this logic make any sense to you? Okay, you know, look, I mean, just look at his argumentation. We, we did it. We got him to affirm Trinitarian belief, and we're not going to publish the transcript so that it's not distorted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just doesn't make any sense. So when people on my Facebook wall, they when they you know when these link the link to this started going up, we're asking, this doesn't make any sense. And I, I said, listen, you gotta just look at it from the right point of view. When you look at it from the right point of view, it makes perfect sense. Okay. On yesterday's blog post. McDonald actually made some kind of a veiled reference to the fact that they hadn't broken even yet on the total cost of the event and that they were hoping to hit the break even point through DVD sales. Okay. So, I mean, plain and simple. I mean, this is just smart marketing, just flat out smart marketing. Okay. He knows he's got a controversial topic on his hand. And if he were to put out an official transcript, that people could reference, okay, then they wouldn't need to buy the DVD. This is this is just good marketing on his part. So 
we, we've got a controversial topic, okay? All he's got to do now is make sure that, you know, that the only channel for officially hearing what T.D. Jake said is through a paid method. That would be the DVD sales. And once he does that, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, he's, he's ensuring at this point that DVD sales will be high at, with the goal of hitting the break-even point. This is just a business decision, plain and simple. And, you know, I hey, you know. If they think it's the wrong decision for them to put out a uh, you know a full-on transcript, well, then that's their decision. I mean, you got to understand if you, you might make a you might make the same decision yourself if there was a huge deficit between what you spent to, for the event to take place and what you would and what you were taking in. So I mean, yeah, controversial topic. Everyone's talking about it now. He ensures that when the DVDs come out, the only place that you'll be able to officially hear. What TD Jake said from uh, the from the folks at the Elephant Room conference is by purchasing the DVD makes perfect sense, and uh, like I said, I, I I can't say that I would I would make a different decision, but it's just it's funny that you know <laughs> that all this other stuff is in the mix that just doesn't make any sense. So anyway, yeah, again, you know, I when I was on um, Brandon House's program last night, and I also on uh, on his word his way, I, I you know I asked the the host to. Uh, you know, to play a little role play with me, okay? Plain and simple. You know, just ask me what what uh, what I believe regarding the Trinity, and, and so Brandon House played along, and and so did Psycho Woods. He, so Chris, what do you believe regarding the Godhead and the Trinity? Well, I'd be happy to tell you, but I'm going to be doing a video podcast tomorrow at uh, you know three o'clock central, and uh, in order, if you want to know what I believe regarding the Trinity, you need to tune in there, and and, uh, and oh, and by the way, it's ninety nine bucks a head, yeah. Yeah, see, it's weird. This whole thing is just so crazy. I mean, seriously, we're we're going to have conversation regarding non, uh, you know, well, uh, non-negotiable doctrines like the doctrine of the Trinity, and we're going to turn it into a television spectacle that people have to pay money to either uh, attend or uh, or purchase the DVDs. Yikes! This is this is frightening. I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, I, 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 you know, the best analogy that I can come up with for this is like, you know, hate, I know that there's a lot of people out there that are going to think I'm hating on them for this comment, but here's the deal. Something that doesn't, has never made any sense to me. Bottled water. (laughs) I mean, have you ever sat down and done the math on how much you're paying for bottled water? How expensive that bottled water is? I mean, I've seen television exposés by news agencies that talk about bottled water and what a sham it is. You know, in some places, they're literally just bottling tap water and, you know, it's got good packaging and stuff like that. And we're paying for bottled water. I mean, this, I mean, this is like paying for bottled water. And yeah, a lot of people out there swear by this stuff, but I mean... Okay, I mean, how much per gallon are you paying for that bottled water? It starts to get it. It starts to compete with gasoline prices and some, you know, with some particular brands. It's that's worth noting. Okay, so yeah, I don't particularly like bottled water, and you know, this idea we're gonna have a conversation about something as vital and as important as the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's gonna be something that you gotta pay to see. Uh yeah. Um the the concept again just feels like well purchasing bottled water.
All right, last piece of all of this, and uh, this is a little bit of audio from my appearance last night. I'm going to put a link to this up at the Fighting for the Faith website so that you can uh, you can listen to it. But last night I appeared on a uh, on Blog Talk Radio, and uh, one of my uh, listeners, uh, he's uh, he's a minister in the African American community, and he attended uh, the uh, Elephant in the Room uh, down there in Houston, Texas. And what I want you to hear is him talking about you know his experience there and there's a couple of things that are worth noting okay uh, and it has to do with the fact that during the elephant conference itself the elephant room conference uh participants uh people who were <laughs> who paid and then were actually allowed into the venue i wouldn't know anything about that but <laughs> people who actually paid and then were allowed <laughs> to sit and watch um they were given, uh, you know, one of those uh, cell phone, you know, text codes. You know, if you, you know, you can text your question to, you know, uh, you know, number three seven whatever, and you know, something like that. And what what's interesting is is that 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 um, that ability to ask questions via text message was completely shut off when Jake's uh, and uh, Driscoll. And McDonald took the stage in session number four, which is worth noting. Now, I also uh, push Psycho here and ask him to uh, tell me um, tell me where they attended the conference. So I want you to hear it in his words. So this is a segment from uh, my last night's uh, appearance on uh, His Word, His Way uh, in, in down there in Houston, Texas. So here we go. Yes, he did. Now, and also, Chris, if you, if, you did, if you noticed, I'm not sure... Uh, uh, I know when Fonzie and I went on yesterday, uh, I think Jake's came on on the fourth session, I believe, Fonzie. He came on on the fourth session, or was it the third session? I know he came on before lunch. Third or, third or fourth, yeah. Okay. So he came on either between the third or fourth session. It was right before lunch, uh, Chris. But what, what, uh -huh. what Fonzie and I noticed was that they gave us a text code, okay? If you had any questions or comments about, you know, that you would like to ask the, the, the panelists, you know, dial uh -huh. this number. And so I made sure that I did mine right because I asked Fonzie because he's a tech guy. I said, man, make sure I got this tech thing right. You know, how do I do this? He said, yeah, do this, do this, and this is how you send it. I said, great. So I did that. The first two or three sessions before Jake's came on, they were asking and answering questions online. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, Chris, when Jake's came on, the, the texting and the, and, the, and the response, the text messages, uh, live stream stopped. Wow. I sent at least two. I sent at least two messages personally that I didn't I did not get read. I know I wasn't the only one at the conference, but they didn't have any at all. No text messages, no questions that were going on the air, uh, live stream from anyone uh for, for to question Jake's about his doctrine or nothing like that. Nobody. I just found it to be very odd and strange. <laughs> what is Okay, now that's an important piece of data. Now, what does that tell you? They didn't want somebody, anybody with any kind of theological acumen to ask the good theological question. So what ha I mean, so all of the sessions during the conference, they had text codes where the participants, the people in the audience, could ask questions of the people on the panel uh, via text message. And there was exchange apparently going back and forth via the people listening on the multi-sites using these text messages. Jake's comes on to into the elephant room 
and immediately that is shut off and shut down and no questions are allowed to be asked of Jake's in the elephant room. Don't you find that a bit odd and a bit suspicious? <laughs> I do. Well, then, you know, partway through, you know, shortly after this, I asked uh, Psycho to uh, go ahead and explain where it was that he was watching the uh, elephant room conversation and, you know, what church that it was at. And, uh, and tell, you know, and he ended up telling people about the conversation that he had with the pastor of that particular church. Yeah, here's a little bit more information for you. Uh, from uh, two uh, two African American pastors who um, were in attendance. Tell them where you were at. Where what what church were you watching this thing at? Oh wow, Chris! Thank you for putting me on the spot. I'm I'm the I'm the I'm the host, but now you got me on the other side of the table. Thanks a lot, Chris. No problem. I'll tell them. <laughs> we, we went we went uh, Fonz and I out of all places uh, that that could have hosted the conference. Uh, it was hosted at a one Pentecostal church. Now. Funny thing about it was these people were very nice, very warm, very hospitable. But it was at a one that's been a cop out of all the churches, out of all the locations and sites that could have been located here in, in the Houston area, it was only one place that it was at a one church. And so I was like, wow. I'm like, okay, Lord, are you serious? So I got to go to a one church to, to hear whether I just do it as a Trinitarian or a modalist? But that was, I found it to be odd. And, and here's the funny thing about this, and, and, and I'll. I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll leave the leave the question for Fonzie or, or 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 Carson to ask if they need to ask any question for you, Chris. This is this is what we found out to be to be interesting. I'm sitting there and I'm saying, okay, after Jake has finished giving his little talk and his explanation of what he thought the Trinity was and was not, the, the pastor of the church that we were at came to me and said, hey man, what you thought about the bishop? I said, man, he fumbled. He 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 kept he kept you know vacillating, he kept going back and forth, he kept wishy washy. You know, he wasn't consistent with his argument or his presentation. This guy who's the one that said to me, he says, yeah, man, you know what? Yeah, he did, man. He did. I, I, you know, I really wish he would have just came out and said what he believed. Now, this is coming from another oneness pastor about a bishop who is known to be oneness. And this is what the man said. This is what the man said. Finally, was sat right next to me when he said this. He said, I have a problem with the word persons. I would rather prefer saying manifestation. That I, 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 I see them as manifestation. I don't see them as persons. And this is what I told the, the, the pastor who's one. I said, you know what, I said, you know what, dude? I said, I can appreciate and respect your position, although we may disagree on that, essentially. We, we disagree. I said, I can at least respect it. Why? Because you're being consistent with your view. Right. Jesus is not doing that. He has on his website three manifestations of one God, but then he comes on the elephant room in the elephant room conference, and then he vacillates and goes back and forth, and then he's being led in. He's being led in to say something that he really didn't say at the outset. So there you got it. Uh, you know, he was in attendance there at the um, elephant room at a oneness Pentecostal church in the Houston area. Even the oneness pastor was not happy and thrilled with Jake's response. Why? Because he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, he says he believes in one God, three persons, but then he qualifies it with an asterisk and says, but he's not comfortable with the word persons and prefers the word manifestation. Well, which is it? So, I mean, is it is he a is he a Sabalian trinomodalist? I mean, what is he? So, you know, I, I just you know that I think that's really interesting that um, you know 
that was his reaction. That was unscripted. That he had told me that, uh, you know, the day that the uh, the conference had taken place. And so, um, there you go. I I think that's worth noting. No questions allowed allowed to be asked from the audience while Jake's was up. Then you got the whole thing of it going, you know, of, you know, getting out what he said. And we're just supposed to bend the knee to because James McDonald said, well, now he's a Trinitarian. But when you check what he said, it's pretty clear he was vacillating. Even a oneness Pentecostal pastor wasn't thrilled with it and thought that he was talking out of both sides of his mouth. Yeah. So was that a clear Trinitarian affirmation? Doesn't sound like it to me. Doesn't sound like it to somebody in the Oneness Pentecostal Church. Doesn't sound to it like it uh, from one of our Reformed African American pastors down there in Houston. Um, yeah, it's there's some ser- there's some serious funny business going on with that whole elephant room thing. That that uh, wrong venue, wrong questions, <laughs> wrong approach. No good questions allowed. Uh, yeah, scripted and protected. It seems like. Uh, was really the true story about what went on in the elephant room. All right, we're up on our second break, and if you would like to email me regarding anything you're, you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me, my friend on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Just still can't bring myself to go to a bad sermon yet. <laughs> my soul is tired. I'm not talking about the bottom of my shoes. Here we go. 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Uh, what you're about to hear is not really a sermon. It's actually, uh, we're going to play two uh, Sunday school type lectures delivered recently by Dr. Michael Horton, uh, co-host of the White Horse Inn. He teaches at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary in um, Escondido, California. And he's uh, recently published a book entitled The Gospel Commission, Recovering God's Strategy for Making Disciples. And so these lectures uh, are kind of keyed in with that particular book's content and well worth the listen. We'll listen to two of them today, and uh, we'll, these will probably get put into our uh, light edition rotation for the next few weeks until we exhaust out the rest of the lectures. And uh, what I'm going to do, because it's Friday... I'm tired. <laughs> I'm going to sign off right now and just pass the uh, baton over to Michael Horton. So, um, <laughs> hey, have a great weekend. <laughs> and uh, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. I know it seems weird hearing me say that here. Uh, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'm just going to head out and crash. I'm tired. So. I'll catch you all next week. Here's uh, here's Dr. Michael Horton. We uh, are studying uh, or uh, picking up with a new series, taking a break from the catechism to uh, focus on uh, the Great Commission. I just finished a uh, book for for Baker on this that, Lord willing, will be, be out in, uh, what, January or February. And... Uh, so in, in talking to Pastor Brown uh, and others about uh, what to do next, I thought this would be a good one. He did too. Uh, sort of uh, take a break and think about uh, mission, and then we'll come back to our uh, regular Lord's Day where we left off in the catechism. Of course, everything that we do anyway when we talk about the, uh, the truths of the Christian faith uh, everything is ultimately for mission anyway. God is on this great mission, and he's taking us with him. And uh, first of all, the mission of sending his own son, uh, then sending the Spirit at Pentecost, and then sending us out as his witnesses. And so we're going to take a look at this amazing uh, mission of God, which to which everything else is subservient. It's not that the mission is subservient to the, to the doctrine. The doctrine exists for the very purpose of having a gospel to take to the ends of the earth. And so we want to talk about uh, the integration here of uh, getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Uh, Not uh, two unrelated goals. They're uh, fully integrated, and we're going to be talking about that uh, over the next several weeks. Something else I would like to focus on as we go along is the... uh, cultural aspect uh, of our, our context today, which is so different from other periods, other places in some ways, and yet remarkably similar. Uh, for example, I think that uh, our, period, our era today is, uh, our context in, in North America today, is probably more similar to the period of the early church under the Roman Empire than than the, the church has seen in the West at any particular time in history. 
And uh, so there, there are some really interesting parallels that will, that will follow, but also some really quite radical differences between the age in which we're living and uh, previous eras, certainly previous eras of what's known as Christendom, where you could just take it all for granted and assume that your next-door neighbor loved Jesus, uh, at least said he or she loved Jesus and wouldn't ever contemplate saying anything else in public, at least. Um, and every, Almost everybody in my immediate family was, uh, uh, immediate and extended family when I was growing up, was Southern Baptist. Uh, and, and, you know, we knew that, that, you know, we may be Christian, but we were very certain we were Southern Baptists. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my grandfather used to say, I was, I was born a Southern Baptist and I'm going to die a Southern Baptist. Dad, granddad, what does Southern Baptist believe? I was born a Southern Baptist. I'm going to die a Southern Baptist. Okay, all right. Uh, and then, you, you know, today, show up for, for family reunions, and uh, everything's fine when you're talking about all oh, the good old days of Grandma and Grandpa. And you can even talk about revivals and summer camps and going forward, and people will get tears in their eyes. But you find out that they're New Agers. And uh, uh, in another case, uh, uh, practicing homosexual who doesn't want to hear anything about religion. In another case... Uh, Someone who has uh, just, or several of them actually, who've just become agnostic. But they talk about those events growing up as if they were a big part of their life, a big part of who they really are. A number of other relatives who are, who would say that they're Christians and you can't talk them out of it. Try to talk them out of it all the time, but, uh, you know, no, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Uh, no, actually, I don't try to talk them out of it enough is, is part, of, part of the problem. It's easier to talk to people on an airplane than it is your own family, you know. Uh, and so I get cold feet very often in those circumstances. And when I do bring it up, there's crickets, you know. And you, you might as well have just raised your hand and said, uh, I, have, I have just strapped dynamite to my chest. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And, and people now really do start thinking if you t- if you believe anything strongly in the reli- in terms of religion, you're all in this. You're everybody's in this category of dangerous now. So you know we're all equally dangerous if we believe something very strongly. My children play. Uh, actually, our children, Lisa and I, uh, together. The uh, <laughs> our. Uh, our children play every day with Muslim kids, uh, except for this last week because it was Ramadan. Every evidently last year's Ramadan, we weren't too good at keeping the kids from not having food. So uh, this year they just weren't around during Ramadan. But anyway, uh, the kids were trying. To, we're, we're trying desperately now to get the kids to uh, become more reformed in their evangelism, which doesn't mean quiet. Contrary to, to popular opinion, um, but but not just to tell them. So, yeah, I think I think we'll build a tree house over there. And so, what do you think about going to hell? I mean, that's got to be really <laughs> troublesome for you. Uh, you know, Allah is a false god, and and 
Okay, guys, regroup, regroup. <laughs> Let's just change the game plan a little, and we'll go from there because I think there are great opportunities, but you're missing them. Uh, it's it's really easy to, and sometimes that oldest in in the family will stop and say, he did around Easter, I think, last year. Uh, so what is this about Jesus being raised from the dead? What do Christians believe about that and so forth? Uh, not that recent events of uh, certain uh, Frankie pastors actually helps move those conversations along. Uh, but it is interesting that, uh, you know, our neighbors are no longer uh, uh, Ward and June Cleaver. Uh, you know, they are Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, and we live in a very multi-religious society now. Uh, someone said at the time when uh, the uh, Goths and Visigoths and Vandals came to Rome and sacked Rome, uh, Jerome responded, what is to become of the church now that Rome has fallen? And Augustine, who developed a lot of the thinking about two kingdoms, said, well, isn't it interesting that God has brought the mission field to the missionaries? Two different outlooks, and it was all a result of being able to distinguish between the kingdom of Christ and the empires of this world. Jerome had tethered the hopes of Christianity on the Roman Empire, and Augustine saw them as completely distinct. One can get along without the other. And so... The Great Commission calls us to go into all the world with the gospel, but the world to which we are to take it is no longer as obvious as it once was. Uh, it could be our next door neighbor. <laughs> We're all living in a mission field now. Uh, it's not simply that we, we uh, pay people to go to other parts of the world, though I'm going to be arguing that's still very important. And it's something that concerns me about all of this talk about being missional. We're actually forgetting the missionaries. Nevertheless, we're all missionaries now in a very real sense. And so we're going to be talking about what it means to be uh, missionaries in uh, the world in which we find ourselves today. Our lives are very much bound up with non-Christians uh, in a variety of ways. It's easy to lump the other into one group when you're thinking of this nominally Christian country over here and then we send missionaries to uh, you know, the deepest paganism around the world. A little bit more complicated when you think uh, that the other is a son or a daughter or brother or sister. Begin to think about what Jesus says when he says, uh, you know, this is, it's, it's either me or your mom. That didn't make sense probably to our grandparents as much as it will be making more and more sense to us today. Uh, it certainly has, still makes sense to the Christians who are being persecuted around the world. Today, more Christians are being persecuted. In, in fact, in the last uh, decade, more Christians have been persecuted than in all of the centuries uh, of Christianity combined. Just in the last decade. So the Great Commission, it, it makes a big difference who's hearing it. Somebody in 
Saudi Arabia, a Christian in Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, or China, or a Christian in North America. And it's interesting, when you talk to people in the two-thirds world, Christians in the two-thirds world, they get the Great Commission, and they're on fire with the Great Commission. They're excited about the Great Commission, and, and a lot of us in North America are just kicking it our, at the heels against this thing. We're just so, uh, it's intolerant, it, why don't we just live? Why do we, have to, why do we have to preach the gospel? Why do we have to be so divisive over these questions? Um, wherever it's more cushy, it's easier for us to take the, the Great Commission for granted as something maybe somebody else does. And we'll pay them to do that, but, but it's not something that we need to do ourselves. A lot of people uh, we're surrounded by, too, are, uh, are, are burned. So some, some people we run into have, have no contact, especially younger people in the culture today, first generation now that has, that, that, where there's such a high number of people who've had no contact with the church at all. And so Christianity is not at all privileged civilly, socially, in their minds over other religions. They don't, they don't know what Christianity teaches. I, they're the best people to talk to. Uh, you don't have to, first of all, uh, you know, do as much, quite as much cleanup. Um, you can just start right out of the gate with, with folks like that. The, the tougher people are people who are raised uh, conservative Christians. The hardest in the world. I still keep in touch with some of my friends from Christian college. Uh, I would say, I, don't, I can't put a statistic on it, but lots of my friends from a staunch Christian college, uh, in fact, a lot of them who were the most on fire then in that college uh, and most resistant to the doctrines of grace in many cases uh, are, are uh, the most adamant, outspoken atheists today. They're just, uh, there's a rabidness. Uh, I don't want to hear anything about it. I almost, I almost uh, assume now when somebody's really acerbic, and they make all of these exaggerated, extreme remarks, and they're a wasp, they were probably raised in fundamentalism. They were probably raised in some form of, of evangelical Christianity where they got burned, and uh, they are going, it's payback. Almost, not, not in every case, but in, in many. For example, Ted Turner, who said famously, uh, or infamously, Christianity is for losers. Uh, he went to uh, Christian schools all of his life. And he says that's where he sort of developed this disdain for Christianity when he saw it up close and personally. Well, what he saw up close and personally was a very kind of extreme slice of, of uh, Christianity and one that we would say probably doesn't reflect uh, the views of historic Christianity as much as one might like. Shirley MacLaine was the daughter of a Southern Baptist missionary fam, uh, parents. And uh, Hugh Hefner was the son of a uh, Methodist minister. 
fact, he said he, he uh, writes of growing up in a repressed Methodist Middle West, Midwestern home, as he puts it, and he just escaped by going out and listening to the new rock and roll music and trying to find uh, some air to breathe outside of his home. And uh, I don't believe everybody, when they're telling these stories of growing up in rural America, the heartland, the Bible Belt, and so forth, you don't believe everything that they say, but a lot of it you can, you can kind of identify with. The Bible Belt will probably be, uh, in future years, I think, uh, one, of the, one of the most hardened atheist places, one of the most difficult places to reach probably in 20 or 30 years. Because that's what happens when, when uh, enthusiasm burns out, and it's Finney. It's Charles Finney all over again where he created the Burned Over District, where his revivals created the, uh, the cults. In the wake of Finney's movements came the cults. And I fear that that's what's going to happen increasingly in, uh, in the Bible Belt. Oprah Winfrey uh, loved to quote Bible verses. She was raised in a progressive missionary Baptist church. And uh, she used to tell Bible stories, sometimes even in church, where she began her public career as uh, a, a performer before an audience. In fact, her friends at school dubbed her Preacher Woman. As LaTanya Taylor relates, quote, to her audience of more than 22 million mostly female viewers, she has become a postmodern priestess, an icon of church-free spirituality. Or you think of uh, a denomination in which um, uh, liberalism is the new traditionalism, the Episcopal Church. Uh, John Shelby Spong, Bishop Spong, uh, is just vitriolic. He, 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 one of his books he's famous for is Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism, which, as it turns out, is Christianity. Uh, and uh, there's nothing in Christianity that he likes. And so he's, he, he is... Uh, I, I think, I'm pretty sure that he's just an atheist, a uh, retired bishop. But uh, Spong, who's been on Larry King Live attacking uh, uh, the Christian creed with a blend of sarcasm and uh, poor scholarship, uh, it really does. I mean, it's just it's appalling how, how bad it is, but he, he, he gets invited back again and again. He was raised in a uh, very strict fundamentalist home. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, that you can also look at all kinds of wonderful things that came out of uh, out, out of uh, uh, fundamentalist homes and churches and schools and so forth. But I think a lot, a lot of what we're answering for now is the result of a kind of Christianity that where, where they never really understood the gospel and they never really uh, were encouraged to think for themselves, where, where, where it was almost cultic. And uh, that's what people are reacting against today when Madonna sings, Papa, don't preach. What preach means in our culture now. Preach means, you know, it, it, it's not associated with proclaiming the good news uh, or persuading people uh, or giving a defense of the faith, uh, uh, the faith that you have. 
This isn't the first time that we've been in a situation like this, though. All of the major philosophers of the Enlightenment were not hardened atheists. They just didn't like the Christian distinctives very much. They wanted a universal uh, religion of morality, of practical morality. The Bible is one thing, and the faith of Christ is another. The Christian faith is different from the faith in Jesus. And almost all of these leaders of the Enlightenment were raised in pietist evangelical homes. Almost every one of them. All the way to Friedrich Nietzsche and Karl Marx. They're all, uh, almost all of them uh, were not only raised in, a Christ, in an evangelical pietist home, but almost all of them were raised uh, in the homes of ministers and were themselves preparing for the ministry when they chose to focus on philosophy, because philosophy was part of the ministerial training. It's amazing how similar the lives, the, 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 the backgrounds, educational backgrounds and uh, home life of these leaders of the Enlightenment, at least in Germany uh, and England, happen to be. And so uh, there, we have this history of creating the very... The, the, the very secularism that we end up fighting later on. It, it's sort of a, a pendulum that swings back and forth. And what we're, what we're seeing right now, I believe, uh, is not a foreign invasion of secularists, lately arriving on ships and, and uh, airplanes uh, from Russia or somewhere to uh, corrupt our youth. What we're seeing is uh, a homegrown crop of people raised in Christian churches and cult, the, the subculture of, of uh, Christianity who are acerbically against it, very much opposed to it, um, in many cases without having been exposed to it. Does all of this make sense? Are we, we run into lots of those people when we're talking about the Great Commission. And so it's, it's hard to say that the, in our context, the Great Commission will, be mean, will mean go into all the world and talk to people who've never heard this before. Uh, it may mean go you know, talk to the person next to you on the plane or the person you live next to, your next door neighbor, who has had a bad experience with Christianity and will never darken the door of a church for a long time until over time, hopefully, the spirit uh, uh, breaks uh, uh, down the resistance simply by uh, conversation and friendship and, and that sort of thing. We have to be ready, I think, to see our mission field as similar to Saudi Arabia. If we went to Saudi Arabia, we're going to see one person every now and again, uh, but it's not going to be this kind of uh, mass response that, uh, that, we've, that we have gotten used to. And I think that's good, because a lot of what has produced those mass responses is part of the problem in the first place, is what inoculates people to real Christianity. While the West stews in the juices I'm just giving a background here before we get into the material uh, next week, a context for the Great Commission today. Uh, the West currently is stewing in its own secularist juices while 
the balance of, of active, faithful Christianity is shifting radically to the southern hemisphere. The northern hemisphere is, 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 is draining and uh, uh, the blood, as it were, is moving south. And that's what we see all around the world. It's the, it's the global south where Christianity is taking, is taking uh, shape and really growing while it's dying in the north, uh, northern hemisphere. And man, I, you know, the statistics are enough to, to slap you in the face, but when you go to some of these places, as many of you have, and you meet people uh, who are definitely not... Um, beholden to North American culture and are more excited than you are about the Christian faith, it makes you just want to say, can you come up and, and be a missionary to America? And that's what's happening now with uh, uh, South Korean Presbyterians are sending missionaries to North America now. You're more likely to see uh, a uh, Brazilian missionary in Pakistan than an American one now. The, uh, th- there are uh, more Presbyterians, uh, Presbyterian and Reformed people. And here I'm talking about conservative, confessional Presbyterians. They just won their denomination back uh, from mainstream, going in a mainstream evangelical direction. There's a wonderful story that hopefully will be written down. Uh, there are more confessional Reformed and Presbyterian Christians in Brazil than in North America. There are more confessional Reformed Christians in Nigeria today than in North America. Just one country versus a continent. A continent that used to be the sending nation. Things are radically changing. It also means that that rotten stuff that we've imported, like the prosperity gospel, is still spreading like wildfire and corrupting all sorts of things, including Presbyterian and Reformed churches around the world. But there is this really uh, interesting uh, growth and spread also of robust confessional Christianity in the two-thirds world, which is very exciting to see. Again, it's going to be a rough road to hoe. It's not going to happen overnight, but it is very fascinating. In Europe, you know, of course we know... Uh, that that is a new mission field. It's, that's why we're so much beyond, uh, behind uh, the work of the Philadelphia Church in Milan uh, and uh, um, the Heidelberg uh, Reformed Church in, in Germany. There, there are all kinds of uh, uh, works that need to be supported in Europe. And we think, well, but they've heard it all before. No, they're about 20, 30 years advanced beyond us in secularization. Uh, a sociologist, Peter Berger, said that, that the processes of secularization meant the more modern a society was, the less significance religion and spirituality would have. That's how it would go. And what's been, been shown is that that is the way it worked in Europe, but not America. In America, because evangelicalism and revivalism have always gotten along well with modernity. Technology and pragmatism and, and so forth, uh, it has been able to adapt 
and actually use modernity in order to grow. And that's a very interesting uh, insight. But in Germany, uh, all the prognosticators were right. Uh, there, there is uh, less than uh, fewer, fewer, less than one percent of the population in Germany is even evangelical, much less confessional in any uh, way, shape, or form. The most popular uh, baby name last year in the Netherlands was Muhammad. And I go back now to uh, to England and am amazed that. Uh, in in places where you know you knew that churches weren't doing very well and the it, it uh, they were doing some bazaars and things like that uh, to keep the church going, you go back now and it's a mosque and it's happening all over you know whole sections of of uh, downtown London where uh, churches that were churches, some of them, you know, designed by Wren, Christopher Wren, and so forth, or the, you know, quintessentially uh, English churches, are mosques. It's a it, it's a very interesting, uh, very interesting context that we uh, find ourselves in now when we talk about being heralds and ambassadors uh, of the gospel. But we're on an embassy. Uh, it's an embassy of peace. Uh, and uh, it's not like any like any ambassador. We don't get to negotiate the treaty. We don't we don't get to determine policy. All we do is announce it. And so we're going to be looking at uh, the announcement that gives us the authority to go out on the, this mission in the first place uh, next week. The great announcement. We often start with the great commission. Go into all the world. Go therefore into all the world. But what's the therefore therefore? Uh, Start, we should start the Great Commission with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, into all the world. Let's not start with law, let's start with gospel. And then the, the imperative flows out of that. And so we're going to look at that next week. Um, what does it mean to be part of the embassy of peace? We'll be looking at what does it mean not only to make disciples, but to be disciples in this passing evil age especially in the context in which God has placed us here uh, in North America in the early uh, 21st century. Any questions? Great, great question. Who's it easier to talk to, the imam or the person, the Christian who's been burned? Part of it is it's not just that the, there's a, you have a Christian who's been burned. It's also that 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 the forces of modernity were so great, so powerful, they chose. The, the, they chose, the, or they, they, they thought that they were helpless. They couldn't do other than embrace uh, 
secularism, uh, that's just the persu- had the persuasive power behind it. Um, a lot of people have not heard very good arguments for the Christian faith, and not just arguments as in uh, you know evidences for the for, for it and so forth, but seen it in people's lives around them and really where to the place where it really makes a difference. But modernity, secularism, really does make a difference in people's lives. It really does shape people and families, and it does have a lot of persuasive power. That if you just if you just place your life in the hands of science, they put a man on the moon. They've done all kinds of stuff with Kellogg's, and if you you know if if you uh, if you can just trust your your life to science, then then all will be well. It, part of it is just the what what people allow themselves to believe, what people will tolerate believing. And it is, in a sense, easier to talk to an imam, perhaps. Uh, I mean, I have talked to Muslims. I've never talked to an imam. Uh, but easier to talk to Muslims who at least are suspicious of modernity. They're at least uh, not ready to swallow hook, line, and sinker whatever secularism throws their way. Um, but I think one of the we'll talk about this. One of the things that's very effective with in evangelism with Muslims, I think, is one, the gospel. They've never heard anything like it. Uh, they, they, there is nothing in Islam about the forgiveness of sins. They don't believe in original sin. We're all born in the same state, state as Adam, and we're exactly faced with the same choices that Adam was faced with, and. We will either submit to Allah or be his slave in hell. And that's true of everyone else. And so, yeah, this whole idea of... They they also believe that we were... Now, these are people who actually believe it. Of course, there are liberal Muslims. Um, We were all born Muslim. And we apostatized. So everybody is by nature, like we say by nature in Adam, they say by nature Muslim. And everybody is an infidel. From that perspective, everyone, well, is not only an infidel, but an apostate, has abandoned Allah, has abandoned the true religion, Islam. And that's where uh, you know, apostasy is, is something that is uh, treated as something that everybody is guilty of, except for uh, uh, observant Muslims. Yeah, you get those uh, sort of you shake your head and wonder how how can we then how can we possibly um, get beyond this? I think that really to talk about who Christ is, uh, to talk about the uh, uh, the historical evidence. In one case, talking to a friend, Muslim friend, um, very well educated. Uh, um, he he was he was very interested in talking about the history, and I was sort of challenging him on some historical points about Islam, and then was talking about the historical evidence uh, for the resurrection. And he came back, and he really knew a lot of his history, and it was very interesting, uh, con- a very interesting conversation. He was willing to engage in it. But I said, "Just between you and me, and no no one else is here. This is not in your face, and it's not because I'm a better arguer than you are. You're obviously more brilliant than I am." You, you can't possibly say Islam has a credible case historically. And 
I think that in this conversation you have kind of given a lot of territory on that. Are you still just willing to hold on to it because you believe that Allah, it dropped from heaven and you can't criticize it or investigate it? And he said, yes. I said, well, good. At least you'll know getting off, you know, out into the, uh, uh, any further discussions you might have with, with Christians. At least you'll know that at this point you're, you've rejected it even though uh, when you use the same uh, mind that you use obviously very well in your professional life and apply it to your religion, your religion comes up short. That's a good thing to... Okay, well, <laughs> all right, nice talking to you. But at, you know, at least to leave that, plant that seed of doubt and, and, and you know, this is why you're believing it then. Um, yeah, that's a lot, uh, I, uh, in some ways, a lot easier than talking to someone who says, I don't want to have anything to do with this conversation. So to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Yeah. What a great idea. And that didn't get any media attention, I don't think. Right. See, that, I mean, that's part of the problem is, uh, come, let us reason together. Let us talk about these things. Doesn't exactly uh, create a media circus. And uh, yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll pick up there next week. Well, as I introduced last week, we're uh, going through the. Indicatives and imperatives of our Lord's commission, particularly taking a look at uh, the mission of the church in the light of our contemporary context. And in uh, uh, what I'd like to do this morning is focus on the uh, the indicative that becomes the basis for the Great Commission. Uh, before we even talk about going, we have to know what. Why, why, why we have something to go with. Uh, and uh, so we're going to focus this morning on uh, the basis of the Great Commission itself. And let me read it from uh, Matthew 28. Now the 11, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, 
even to the end of the age. Then Mark's version, Mark 16, uh, beginning at verse 15, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Uh, I'm a pretty impulsive person. I think my wife would attest that fact. Hopefully she's not here to sort of underscore the point. Oh, there she is. Um, I, I go, uh, you know, I'm supposed to run an errand, take something to the bank, and this rarely happens because of the, the lack of trust she has in me now. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've got to take a check to the bank. And um, so here I am, halfway to the bank, realizing that I have everything that I need except for the check, come back and uh, see my wife grinning at the door with a kind of smirky grin, not all that friendly. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, uh, go. <laughs> get her done. Uh, you got to just get out there, make sure that uh, it happens quickly, uh, uh, that's being effective, not necessarily actually having the check with you. Uh, now, it, we have to be careful about that in relation to the Great Commission. It, it's, it's easy to uh, think of the Great Commission merely as a call to go. You know, And that's one of the great strengths of many of the evangelical churches we came from was that they go. There's a go. Uh, at least, you know, I, I think probably may, maybe more 20 or 30 years ago, perhaps, than now. But then there was a, a, a powerful emphasis on personal witness and on uh, uh, short-term missions, long-term missions. Just, you know, you heard a lot more, uh, I think, about 20 years ago in evangelical churches than you do today about going. But not always nailing down <laughs> the previous question. You know, do you have the check with you? What, what are you going with? What are you taking? And getting the gospel right is just as important as getting the gospel out. Now, we can do this the other way, too. We can say, well, uh, you know, what are you doing? I told you to go. And we say, yes, Lord, I know. But we wanted to get the gospel right. Good, I but go. <laughs> uh, and uh, D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist of the, uh, at the turn of the, the uh, uh, 20th century, said, uh, and he, I'm almost sure that he had Calvinist detractors in mind in London when he said, uh, uh, in response to criticism of his novel approach to evangelism. I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, there's a certain, it stings a little bit because we're, we're, we, we have become very good in the Reformed tradition sometimes at critiquing what we have left and knowing that we don't do certain things that we used to do that we thought was central to everything. And 
we, we, need to, we need to stop and ask ourselves some of these basic questions too. What is, what is the Great Commission? What is the basis for the Great Commission? And what is the imperative that arises out of that? Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples. That's usually where we start. It's on the banners of the missions conferences, and it's the, you know, go, therefore, into the world. This is, this is the Great Commission. But, as usual in uh, uh, Christian circles, imperatives are often issued without the indicatives that they're grounded in. And the Great Commission doesn't actually begin with go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. The Great Commission actually begins with the announcement, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. And so I, I, I think that uh, sometimes some of our non-reformed brothers and sisters uh, really take the imperative seriously, and we really take the indicative seriously, what we really need to do is put the two together. And uh, so let's try to do that uh, uh, in the brief time that we have this morning. First of all, you know, we don't have to waste time on this, we, we, we know, uh, we hear it week in and week out, uh, that imperatives are grounded in indicatives, and that's true in our Christian life. Uh, you, you are this in Jesus Christ, therefore no longer live as if that's not true. Present your bodies, the members of your bodies, to righteousness instead of unrighteousness, because you are righteous in Jesus Christ. So you always have this grounding of imperatives, what we are to do, uh, in indicatives, who we already are, not because we've done something, but because Christ has done something for us. The church's mission is grounded in God's mission. God didn't say, uh, you know, I, I'm going to uh, make salvation possible, then I'm going to uh, build a church in order to evangelize the world. And the, the, the church is going to do this work of, uh, of mission. God has been a missionary from the beginning. God is the first missionary. Uh, the first... The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally spirated uh, from the Father and the Son. And in time, when the time had fully come, the Father sent the Son into the world to be our Redeemer and then brought Him back up to the seat of all authority and power at his right hand, and sent his spirit. And so you have all three persons talking about their, their missions trips. The father, uh, the, the father sends the son. The son says in the, in the upper room discourse in John 14 through 16, I'm going to leave, but the father and I have this all figured out. We're going to send the spirit. And when he comes, all of this will happen. You have ascending missions, and then the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit say, as I, as the Father, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me into the world, so I send you. 
So the Father sends the Son, the Father and Son send the Spirit, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit send us. God's been doing this forever, um, since creation. Not just in redemption, but in creation. All works have been done from the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit, through, uh, through the Spirit. Creation, providence, redemption, consummation. In every work, in every work, the Father is sending the Son and the Holy Spirit is the one bringing it to fruition. So God is the original missionary. It's a great book. If you want to go into uh, this in greater detail, uh, Christopher Wright, who uh, is sort of John Stott's successor uh, in London, has written a great book, The Mission of God, Unlike, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. And it's great because he points out there that that it's not just that there are a few really important missions texts for our missions conferences in the Bible. The whole Bible is a missions document. It is the mission of God, not the mission of us, but the mission of God in which now, in this stage of that mission, he invites us and and commands us to participate. But it's God's mission. It's not ours. It's a kingdom we are receiving, Hebrews 13 tells us, not a kingdom we are building. God's original image bearers, Adam and Eve, were also sent on a mission, which they failed to keep. Israel was called out and sent out on a mission. Israel wasn't uh, to hide its uh, light under a bushel, uh, Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. Remember, that's the original commission. Israel was elected to be a missionary to the world. And that, of course, never happened. Until the true Israel, the last Adam, came and fulfilled everything that the first Adam failed to do, and now his kingdom is spreading around the world. There is hardly any place left on this planet where Jesus hasn't planted his feet and claimed it as his territory. This is what is written, Jesus told the disciples in Luke 24, after he rose from the dead. This is what is written in the Old Testament. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That's the mission. The prophets already told you this would happen. Cross, resurrection on the third day, and then repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to the world. And Jesus says the same in the Olivet Discourse when he says uh, that uh, the, 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 the day of judgment will come only after this gospel has been preached every nation. Then the end will come. What this tells us is that the whole reason right now that Jesus Christ hasn't ripped apart the sky and returned in his judgment and glory, the, 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 the reason why Jesus Christ has not yet set foot in his flesh on the earth again 
is because he's not finished with the missionary program. Now that doesn't mean, as some of us were taught, that the only reason we're on earth is to evangelize. We have a lot more to do than that. Fulfill our vocations, love and serve our neighbors in our various callings. Enjoy life with friends and and uh, with our spouses and our children and so on. But the, 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 the main reason that Jesus has not returned, according to these passages, is that hasn't been done yet. That gospel has not yet been preached to everyone, and not all of the elect have responded. When that happens, the door of the ark closes. And there is nothing left in history but for Jesus to return and carry his ark to safety. And then you have the last judgment and the beginning of uh, the, the consummated kingdom of Christ. The gospel isn't merely something that we take to unbelievers. It is the word that created and continues to sustain the whole church in its earthly pilgrimage. Um, there is no there is no identity between the church and Christ except that we are his body and he is our head we didn't we didn't uh, 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 attain this status uh, we are not capable of living the gospel or being the gospel we are not extensions of his incarnation these are all terms that you often hear in missions today uh, he is the missionary. He seeks and saves the lost. And he has done that through the preaching of the gospel and baptism and the Lord's Supper and church discipline. He does that still in churches that are 200 years old in exactly the same way that he does it out uh, in uh, places that have never heard the gospel before. The danger is to think that we get it and we don't need the gospel anymore. It's something that we take to the far edges of the planet and yet the Great Commission isn't something that we need here. And that's, that's a danger, I think, uh, again and again. Just like the gospel, the Great Commission is for every week in the church. Churches that, are, that have been around for 500 years need the Great Commission as well as the Gospel every week. It's not just something we take to uh, people who have never heard. It's something uh, that we need to hear. There is one Savior and one head of the church. To Him alone all authority is given in heaven and on earth. On the verge of Good Friday, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What did Jesus mean here when he acknowledges that the Father has given him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to those whom the Father had given him. 
Well, we know this is the eternal covenant of redemption, where the Father before the foundation of the world chose a people for the Son and gave them to Him. And He became the guardian, the mediator, the trustee of the elect. And throughout the Gospel of John, you have this uh, breadcrumb trail leading to the Great Commission, even though the Great Commission isn't found in John's Gospel, but to the form of the Great Commission that you have in Matthew's Gospel. Just walk through that, uh, that, um, that remarkable trail. John 1, beginning in the first chapter of, of John's Gospel, Jesus, uh, uh, or, uh, John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is God's work. People don't just save themselves by their own free will. This is a gift of God. We don't have the ability or the authority to make ourselves the subjects of God's redeeming action. We're the ones who have to be saved. We're not co-saviors. And then in in chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus that apart from this new birth from above, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven. It's amazing how we turn that one around, uh, you know, how to be born again in six easy steps. Uh, it's the very opposite of what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. Unless someone is born again, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. has to be born again in order to see it, in order to, to be part of this new creation reality. If you're born from above, this is not something... That you, can, that you can bring about any more than you could bring about your natural birth. And then in chapter 5, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever He will. That's 5.21. And then in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5, uh, we read that the Father has given all judgment into the hands of the Son. Then in chapter 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down out of heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of every single one He has given to me to save, I will not lose one of them, but raise him up at the last day. And then in chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Then in chapter 15, he reminds his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go out and bear fruit that would last. You see that trail throughout John's Gospel? Just you know, like a, a rock skipping across the pond. It only, it only misses a chapter here and there. It runs throughout John's Gospel, this steady drumbeat emphasis on all authority 
being given to Jesus Christ. But it's not all good news that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. Uh, if you are, if you are protesting his reign, uh, if if you are uh, refusing to uh, to uh, uh, turn from your wickedness and live, if you're refusing to trust in Jesus Christ and relinquish your confidence in your own righteousness, the the announcement that Jesus is Lord is not good news. That all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him because it's been given to him for judgment and salvation. And so Jesus says, I have authority over all flesh so that I may give eternal life to the ones you have given me. It's not that he doesn't have authority over the ones the Father didn't give him. He has authority over all flesh so that he may save those whom the Father gave him from all of eternity. And so that's what we're meant to hear when we come to the Great Commission and hear Jesus tell us all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. If we don't start there, then we get the kind of evangelism and missions we often get which really does give the impression that it is in the sinner's hands or it's in the evangelist's hands or it's in the hands of the the church marketing movement and its clever methods. It's in the band's hands. Uh, Whirling whirling, uh, uh, faith into the uh, unbeliever through uh, this uh, sheer uh, uh, drumbeat. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can bring this kingdom down from heaven except God himself, the the Holy Spirit working uh, through his word. In his opening vision in the apocalypse, John hears these words from the glorified Son. Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and look, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. That's what, it, that's what the all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me means. I have the keys, not just of heaven, but of hell. I hold all the keys. I stole them from Satan. They didn't belong to him in the first place. And I've been unlocking prison doors. And this suffering church to which this vision comes, the book of Revelation, is unlocking prison doors even as the troops of Jesus coming in and unlocking those doors have their heads lopped off while they're doing it. All authority has been given to me. When Jesus says to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church, not you will build it for me and then I'll come back. I will build, I'm not going on holiday here. 
I'm going to the right hand of the Father, the seat of all authority and power. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And then I will send you, after you're empowered from on high, and you're going out because of something that's already been accomplished. You're not going out to accomplish something. You're going out to claim the prize. You're going out to, up to, to, to reap the harvest, to plant the seeds and reap the harvest. But the, the field has been purchased by me. I am, the, I am the one who has saved it, and I am the one who will bring the increase. As Paul said, Apollos, uh, I planted and Apollos watered, but it's the Holy Spirit who brings the increase. And it's interesting that in Revelation 1.17, uh, Jesus tells John, Fear not, I am the last, uh, the first and the last, uh, the living one. And then just after that goes on to say, Write therefore the things you have seen. It's similar in its structure to what we're seeing here with the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, into all the world. And he tells John, I have the, the keys to death and hell now. Write, therefore, the words of this vision. You see, there's a... There, there's, there's, go tell the world! I have the keys! And not only... Did Jesus say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? He says, and I am giving you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever you loose, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Take these keys and use them. That's the, see, that's the great commission. And that's why when people today talk about, well, let's be missional, and they're talking about something other than the ministry of word and sacrament, which is what Jesus specifically mentions in the Great Commission, they're looking for all sorts of other things besides the keys that he's given. Now, these are the keys of the kingdom. This is the good news. Well, when Jesus means mission, he's not thinking planting churches. You hear that all the time, he says. Well, actually, it seems like that's, that's what he's saying. Go preach the gospel, baptize them, and teach them everything that I have. And then the, the apostles come up later and say, that's why we have elders and deacons, and it gets fleshed out, sure, more than Jesus uh, had talked about, but it's all, it's, it's all just developing from what Jesus had, had taught the apostles. Um. No, it is planting churches, but it's, it's, it's planting the churches on the basis of the proclamation of the gospel, realizing that that often takes time to uh, realize the fruit. The point to be made at this stage, though, is that if, if you're following a how-to-be-born-again approach to Christianity, you're really going to be burnt out not only for missions and evangelism, but for your own concern about your own salvation. Our salvation and the salvation of others to whom we bring the gospel is already accomplished by Jesus of Nazareth. He already holds the keys. 
And he gives us these keys in the special office, yes, of preaching, but in the general office of all Christians witnessing to Christ. All Christians, all Christians have the power of the keys in that sense as general officers uh, with the, with, uh, the uh, uh, baptized as prophets, priests, and kings of the high king Jesus Christ. Paul preached the gospel to Lydia, and we read Acts 16.14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. From here on out, I open, I open and shut. I have the keys. Not just God in general. I, Jesus Christ, the same one who lived and endured the scorn of men. I, the same one who was lifted up on a cross. I, the same one who was raised on the third day. I am the one with nails still in my wrists. Nail prints still in my wrists. I am the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jews had their reasons for not liking that very much. The transfer of the name of Yahweh, who has authority over all heaven and earth, to Jesus, whom our leaders just killed, had executed as a blasphemer. And the Gentiles certainly didn't like it because titles like Kyrios, uh, Lord, uh, even Savior, uh, Savior of the world. These are not uh, terms that were invented uh, in the New Testament. These were terms that were uh, in circulation for Caesar. These were titles of Caesar. The early Christians knew that they were signing their death warrant when they said stuff like that in church. And here we just sort of go along saying these things. But I mean, we shouldn't feel guilty that we're not punished by uh, the shanty police uh, for uh, saying these things. But the early Christians were, not universally across the board. But we have to realize that that's what, that's what they were doing when they were making these claims. And they were not saying, well, Jesus is Lord of my heart. I invited Jesus into my heart, and now he sits on a throne somewhere in here. The Bible doesn't say Jesus lives in our hearts. It says the Holy Spirit uh, indwells us as a down payment on our final redemption. And it's the Spirit of Christ. To say the Spirit indwells us is to say Christ indwells us because the Spirit is, is Christ's uh, right-hand person. You know, They, they work together in this, uh, in, in this saving plan. Nevertheless... Jesus is not occupying a place. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father in our flesh, uh, 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 ruling and reigning for our salvation. No, it doesn't say all authority in human hearts has been given to me if people will. He says all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me now. <laughs> I have that authority. You don't make me Savior and Lord. You're saved because I am Savior and Lord. And I'd like you to go tell everybody that. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Don't go out and try to get people to make me Savior and Lord in their inner hearts. I am Savior and Lord. Go tell them that. And tell them I'm Savior and Lord of heaven and earth. Caesar had no problem with him being the Savior and Lord of heaven. Heaven was a fine place for a deity to do his thing. But Caesar's Lord of earth. The gods can have their heavens, but the Caesars must have their earth. And I said, no, Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. All authority has been given to him. If we don't start here, if we don't start here, we're going to get burned out on the evangelistic missionary enterprise. There's no, you can't do any saving. You cannot do any redeeming of anybody. Neither can I. And we look out there at secularism. I think that's, I think that's why many of our brothers and sisters get so enthusiastic and triumphalistic and do their marches on Washington and whatever. And then when it doesn't work, which of course those things never work, when, that, when it doesn't work, three months later, they're wringing their hands and just sermon after sermon after sermon loading their congregation down with guilt and a feeling of, isn't this a horrible culture to live in and this is a horrible world and oh, it's just a... Because it's the flip side of the triumphalism that didn't work. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, I know there's, you know, look at the secularism, the militant Islam, consumerism, violence. Look at all of the opposition that, you're, that you have and that you're going to have. Chill. All authority in heaven and on earth, not in the future, but right now belongs to me. And as we heard in the sermon this morning, get the big picture. See what I'm doing. If you look at yourself and what you're doing, of course it's in the impossible dream. But take your eyes off of yourself, put it back on me and what I'm doing on me as the missionary and come along for the ride. That's the only basis that we can have for not only only going 3,000 miles away 30,000 miles away to tell people about Christ who've never heard his name. But even for us to be Christians where we are and to be able to share Christ with others because those who are forgiven much love much. And the more we know about what we believe and why we believe it, the better prepared we will be both in content and motivation to share that freely with others. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and this marvelous pledge. We're not going out to save the world. We're not going out to redeem anyone. But that you have in your Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior that you need. You have redeemed us in him. And you are gathering, protecting and preserving a people for him by your Spirit even now. Help us, Father, as those who are indwelt by that same Spirit to go out into the world and bear witness to Jesus Christ. And may many, through that witness, uh, be brought to a saving knowledge of Christ, be baptized, 
and over the life, their lifetime be instructed in everything that you delivered to us in your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.